Welcome to episode two of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast that discusses and examines the 75 greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers and published by Marvel Comics itself. The countdown continues every Wednesday from December 31st, 2014 to June 1st, 2016. So joining us again for his first appearance in this or any podcast is another member of the Horizon Labs Facebook and Twitter group. Welcome aboard, Neek. Hello. Thank you. This time around, we are discussing Civil War, issues one through seven with none of the tie-ins, written by Mark Millar, penciled by Steve McNiven, inked by Dexter Vines, Mark Morales, and Steve McNiven, colored by Maury Hollowell, lettered by Chris Eliopoulos, edited by assistant editors Molly Laser, Aubrey Sitterson, and Andy Schmidt, by main editor Tom Brevoort, and by editor-in-chief Joe Casada. Cover dates range from July 2006 to January 2007. The release dates range from May 5th, 2006 to January 17th, 2007. As already mentioned by the episode number, this is number two on the countdown, the second greatest Marvel story of all time. So from there, let's move into a quick plot synopsis, shall we? Sure. All right. So the first issue opens with the new warriors in their reality show incarnation. Yep. And this time they don't just find random crime to shut down, they actually find a list of villains that are on the FBI's most wanted list, including in particular one named Nitro. Who I hate with a fiery passion because of what he did in this event. Yeah, when the new warriors attack and decide to take him down for the sake of ratings, they kind of knew they were outclassed, but they went for it anyway. And ultimately, Namorita chases Nitro to a schoolyard. Now, for those unfamiliar with Nitro, he's got the ability to blow himself up and then put himself back together again. Which is gross. Yeah, and that is exactly what he does. Uh, The last time we discussed him was in the death of Captain Marvel. He's the one that actually blew up the chemicals that gave Captain Marvel his cancer. Did not know that. Cool. Yeah, and he did not blow up this big in any previous. definitely not. No. Big enough that he kills several hundred innocents, including everyone at the school he was next to, especially the children. Yeah. The cleanup efforts involve everyone. Avengers, X-Men, you name it. Pretty much everyone they can draw is there. Entirety of the superhero community. Yep. And some Sentinels show up, which again show you the level of trust that they have, at least as represented by the local governments. You know, She-Hulk is going on record on the Larry King Live saying that, yeah, you know what? There may be a reasonable response. So we end up with, you know, a distraught mother blaming Tony Stark for the death of her son in the Stanford disaster. Such a great moment. Oh, yeah. We get, you know, J. Jonah Jameson making sure that Peter Parker is getting all this because they're talking about superhero registration. Johnny Storm, who had nothing to do with it, ends up getting assaulted as he goes to a nightclub. And then from there, all the heroes go to the Baxter building to talk about what's going to happen next. We get. You know, the Fantastic Four, the Avengers, the X-Men, the Young Avengers. We even get a version of Daredevil. It doesn't matter so much in the way that they plotted this and structured this, but believe it or not, this was not Matt Murdock in the Daredevil costume during this story. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, there was uh, something else going on in his title. So Matt Murdock was in Europe for part of it, in prison for the rest of it. Yes, no, I do know that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you're right. Yep, so this is, actually that was how, uh, when they released a director's cut that had the script in it, they didn't block out the name of the character well enough, so people found out it was actually Iron Fist under the mask 
from the Civil War rather than from Daredevil. And then from there we go to the Shield Helicarrier, where Maria Hill is telling Captain America, okay, your job is going to bring in these heroes for registration, but Cap is very opposed to it. And Shield draws their weapons and, you know, they're loaded with tranquilizers, but they're basically saying, okay, you're with us or you're against us. And Cap makes good his escape. Instead of jumping out of a tall building as he did in Captain America Winter Soldier, he jumps out of the helicarrier. And it's freaking awesome. Yep. He rides down on a fighter jet after smashing his shield through the canopy, makes the pilot yell, Jesus, and Cap responds, keep flying, son, and watch that potty mouth. Language. So he manages to escape. Meanwhile, back in the Baxter building where everyone else is meeting, the Watcher shows up, so they know that things are in trouble if he's there. The registration passes, and we see that Reed Richards, Hank Pym, and Tony Stark are on board with it, and Tony's front and center saying, leave Captain America to us. Yeah. Issue two, we see that there's a major crackdown between the registered heroes, and now villains and unregistered heroes are being hunted. It's causing a divide with the Fantastic Four, as Reed supports it, but Sue does not. We get J. Jonah Jameson and, you know, Robbie Robertson having a little debate about whether or not this should be there. And Jonah basically says that, yeah, the smart ones are signing up, the rest are not. And when the Registration Act finally becomes law, this is when here's like the Young Avengers are being hunted down Mm -hmm. and brought in. That Steve Rogers is working underground and manages to get some of them out with his supporters. We can teleport them, they get back to his base, he's building numbers to oppose this. And while all this is going on, so while the new recruits are with Captain America, while the X-Men are watching the press releases on TV, while Sue is watching the press release from Johnny's hospital room after his beating, Peter Parker takes a step that Tony Stark encouraged and talked him into, where he unmasks and announces to the world that he is Spider-Man. Crazy moment. Which causes J. Jonah Jameson to pass out. Moving on to issue three. We get Reed talking to T'Challa, trying to get him on his side, but T'Challa is basically staying out of it. Hank Pym goes to Doctor Strange, but doesn't get anywhere. Tony goes to the X-Men, and Wanda basically says, hey, we're already subject to registration because of what's been going on with you guys. Cut to Captain America's team. There's Cap, Hercules, this Daredevil, and Goliath, all meeting at a diner, discussing the options, and they break into action when it's necessary. Cap and his team show up to deal with the issue that they were called into when Cable notices that, yeah, the place that's being leveled that they're coming to protect is owned by Stark Industries, and they realize it's a trap. The pro-registration heroes use tranquilizers to take out Cloak and Wiccan right off the bat to prevent escape, and then it all starts coming down to blows, and the fighting gets very intense. It's actually some very well-done Steve McNiman art in here. Oh, yeah. And the thunder comes down, and Thor, who had been off the table, since Avengers Disassembled, is back. In issue four, we learn that it's not the original Thor, but a clone that was built of him by Reed, Iron Man, and Hank Pym, although the clone doesn't work all that well. No, it is not. Yeah. In the fighting, the clone actually kills Black Goliath, Bill Foster. Now, it tries to kill the other heroes, but the Invisible Woman saves their lives and tells them, get out of here, now. So, and that's enough to manage to survive, and that's the final rift between the members of the Fantastic Four. She will not even let Reed talk to her. Now we get Reed, Hank, and Tony trying to figure out why this failed. Now, it may or may not have been intentional, because I don't know how much Mark Miller knew at the time, but we later learned that Hank Pym had already been replaced by a Skrull at this point. So... That could very well explain why this Thor didn't work very well. One of his co-creators was trying to divide the heroes. 
mm. for the ultimate evasion plans. But the reaction to this is enough to have people on both sides switch over. So some of the pro-registration heroes become anti-registration and vice versa. So from there, we get a nice moment between Tony and Happy Hogan. We've got a brief respite in this story, but we'll talk about that in a bit. There's also a character in a black ski mask who's protecting the anti-registration heroes, but we're not exactly sure why. Now, we see a little bit with the Fantastic Four, so Sue actually leaves Reed. And we also learn that the pro-registration heroes have some villains on their side. So Venom, Bullseye, Elektra, Jack-O-Lantern, Taskmaster. It's not really the best crew to have on your side. <laughs> Issue 5 is with Johnny Storm and Sue Storm escaping custody to go out on their own. Peter Parker has changed his mind and he's now supporting the anti-registration sides after seeing that the training in the pro-reg isn't really enough to save the day. Although he has a hard time escaping from Stark Tower because Tony Stark's windows are much more reinforced than he's used to. <laughs> so S.H.I.E.L.D. has the new quasi-Thunderbolts who are basically drafted in and they go to bring Spider-Man down and very nearly succeed. Right, so the Jester, Jack-O-Lantern, these guys have him pinned until a little red laser comes out of nowhere, and that's the, the guidance for the aiming, and they get killed. And he's doped up. We see Cap and his team's reassembling when the Punisher walks in with a brutally beaten Spider-Man demanding a medic. And the issue ends with Daredevil being taken into custody and brought into the level 42 prison, which is in the negative zone. And apparently this scene was edited... In the original script, the dialogue between Tony Stark and this Daredevil basically said that Tony Stark says, yeah, I know who you really are, you still belong here, but they felt that that would have been too confusing for readers who are not also reading Daredevil, and leave it out so that you can interpret this as whichever Daredevil you want. Plus, I like the Judas reference here. That's a clever touch. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's something that I think Danny Rand would do more playing the part. But yeah. that is a reference yeah. that Matt Murdock would make. Yeah. Uh, in issue six, we see a little bit about the 50 States Initiative, where they're training a team of officially sanctioned superheroes for each of the 50 states. We get people breaking into the Baxter building using advanced tech. We get Sue talking to Namor to try and get him in the fight. You know, the Secret of Ages are coming in, and they are, they've got a plan ready to break into level 42. Some of the villains have come forward and said, hey, you know, this is cramping our style. You know, we don't want the world to end. We just want to cut. If you need us, you know, Iron Man's got some on his side. We'll be on your side. And they get gunned down in cold blood by the Punisher, who doesn't understand why everyone's reacting the way he is. So Cap fights him and puts him down, but Frank Castle refuses to fight back. Not Favorite moment America. in the entire thing. Frank's respect for Cap here is just, oh my goodness. Yeah. Like Cap is just beating him. And he's saying, fight, you coward. And Frank's response is, not against you. I do not condone the Punisher's methods, but he clearly believes he's on the side of right, and he is very, very careful not to harm innocents, mm -hmm. given that. And Cap would be his idol, even if that would disgust Cap. So we see Miriam Sharp talking to Reed and Tony. We see Doctor Strange praying for a resolution that gets it through this, and the Watcher coming to visit him. Meanwhile, Cap's Avengers break into Rikers, only to find that Iron Man's team is ready for him. Only... We find out that the Skrull Hank Pym has been replaced by a totally different Skrull, the half-Skrull, half-Kree Hulkling of the Young Avengers, who's got complete access to level 42 and has managed to release all the prisoners to even up the odds. And that leads into the final oversized issue number 7, which is the one that shipped quite a bit late. 
part of the reason there's so many tie-ins to this event is because, you know, McNiven needed extra time to draw it. The script came to him late because it took a while for Mark Miller to figure out how to end it. And in the end, it was actually Joss Whedon who gave him the solution to the ending. <laughs> yeah, he was stuck on it. They were brainstorming and Joss Whedon was walking by and everyone was there. He stuck his head in going, what's going on? They explained the problem and he handed them the solution that they end up using. <laughs> yeah. But Civil War was selling so well that they felt obligated to make sure the retailers had something to work with. So they approved a bunch of the tie-ins that they hadn't initially approved because they didn't think they were quite good enough to make the cut and kept the shelves full. So there was a lot more tie-ins and one-shots and especially just tangentially related, you know, kind of iffy quality one-shots near the tail end. Because mm -hmm. all the best ones came out first and the later ones only came out because they needed something to have Civil War product on the shelves <laughs> in the slow months. Meanwhile, both teams that are calling themselves the Avengers go into combat and it's a rather brutal fight. They end up escaping the negative zone prison of level 42, and the fight comes to Manhattan. And it's pretty severe. Namor is getting involved. The clone Thor is back in action. It's not going particularly well with heavy losses on either side. Cap starts beating down Iron Man, and just as he's about to finish it, a bunch of civilians pull Cap down, and they're basically trying to stop the fighting because of the collateral damage. And when it's civilians trying to stop Cap, that's when he realizes that, oh yeah, we're fighting for the right cause, but in the wrong way. We're just fighting. Yep. And he turns himself over and orders his people to stop fighting back. In the fallout, they did offer amnesty to all the anti-registration heroes. If they would just register now, all would be forgiven and forgotten. Iron Man becomes the new leader of S.H.I.E.L.D. and announces the 50-state initiative. Spider-Man takes on the black costume, partly because of this and events that went on in his own title. Back in black. Yeah. Reed and Sue start on the path to reconciliation, but in the Fantastic Four title, I believe this is the point where they left to sort of do their own thing. Black Panther and Storm take their part. Yep. Yep. Storm and Black Panther step up, which was a pretty good run by Dwayne McDuffie. Mm -hmm. But anyway, it ends with Tony Stark revealing that, yeah, he's now in charge of S.H.I.E.L.D. because he wouldn't allow the secret identities of his friends to be in anyone else's care, and he's got a bunch more ideas for where to go next. Yeah. So that, in a nutshell, is the plot to the comic book Civil War. Yep. And these days we have to specify comic book, because <laughs> now there's more than one. Indeed. So in terms of the significance, this established a brand new status quo for Marvel for, what, about a good year and a half? Yeah. Which is fairly long for comic books, so... It is, yeah. They didn't have a line-wide event next. They went to a bunch of, you know, there was World War Hulk followed and mm -hmm. other events that were, you know, just tied into one line or the other. It wasn't until Secret Invasion came out that they had another one that hit across the whole line. Yeah. And even that was thematically related with hero against hero and the lack of trust between them. Mm -hmm. But this is where that really started. And that stayed in place at Marvel for a long time. Yeah. Also with Avengers vs. X-Men, which has been discussed previously on this podcast. All right. So how did you first encounter the story uh let's see so when i just started getting into comic books i started my freshman year at high school and our school librarian's a bit of a he he's a comic book fan so i was checking out his library and looked through what he had this is one of the first comic books i've read i read civil war the first volume of ultimate spider-man ultimate x-men and avengers forever it was the first four i read and this one just kind of this one and uh, Avengers Forever is set both back then for me and what's now for me. I, I still love this book like no other. It's my favorite by far. So this really helped shape my perception, I guess, 
of what the what comic books are and what the M- or MU is, the Marvel Universe is. So okay, yeah. With me, it was uh, I was already collecting a lot of regular comics, and they just started to solicit the main issues of this event. There were some Road to Civil War issues, so some Amazing Spider-Man issues and some Fantastic Four issues, as well as the New Avengers Illuminati issues that were kind of setting the stage for it. Those titles I was already collecting, and when this was announced, and they, that first month of solicits, the order form for that came available the day I got promoted with a raise at work. <laughs> nice. So when it's like, okay, I'm feeling good, I got the raise, I'm going to do something I've never done before. Talk to my comic guy, Roy Kim of Thunderground in St. Albert. If you're ever in the area, he runs a great shop. Check it out. Noted. But yeah, I went in and ordered every tie-in to everything in Civil War. And this was big going down. This is one of the few crossovers where the stakes are high enough and the story actually does make sense to bleed into every book in the line. There's some crossovers where you're like, why is this guy here? <laughs> to the point, some of the 90s crossovers, it's like, Okay, you want to have a crossover story with this guy because he works with the other characters, and you've got some cockamamie reason for this guy who swore never to leave his native Los Angeles to be in New York just to take <laughs> Some of them are a stretch. This is not. No, no, it's not. Yeah, this is something where, yeah, here's a decision every single superpowered character in the universe has to make. So, you know, maybe if they had an Alpha Flight title running during it, then that book could avoid it because, hey, that's U.S. politics versus Canada. But it turns out they launched a kind of an Alpha Flight. It was an Omega Flight book that maybe it was titled Alpha Flight. I think it was. Yeah, they did run another one in the fallout of this, dealing with the fact that a whole bunch of supervillains didn't like this whole registration thing, and they fled the States to come to Canada. Yep, by a U.S. agent. Although, it probably wouldn't have been called U.S. agent if he was in Canada. Yeah, but no, it was a good run. Yeah. Sadly, didn't get a lot of pre-sales. That one was solicited as an ongoing and then downgraded to a limited series after the initial orders came in. But on the flip side, Avengers The Initiative was initially solicited as a miniseries and got upgraded to ongoing as soon as the first (laughs) orders came in. There's also a great series. It's my best friend's favorite, actually. Oh, yeah. I would highly recommend both. It is good. Yeah, check out the uh, issue Alpha Flight run if you want to understand why Pluto is no longer a planet. It's explained beautifully in the first issue. All right. Yeah, I don't think I've read that one. Okay, noted. Yeah, in any event, that's where it was. But like we said, the significance for the story, this was big. The death of Bill Foster. Yeah. Who, granted, was not a prominent character, but he's still, he's been a long-time character. I mean, he's been around since, you know, the Caps Kooky Quartet era of the Avengers. For a long time. Yeah, way back in the 60s when Hank Pym couldn't figure out why science changing wasn't work. He went to the next best biochemist on the planet. Bill Foster worked on the problem for a while, said, you know what, this is beyond me. You know who you should talk to? You should talk to Hank Pym. (laughs) Yeah. It could be a little complicated. It could be. (laughs) But yeah, this, at least at the time this was coming out, this was huge. Yeah. And to this day, the last I heard, which the last update I heard was about six months ago, this was still the highest selling trade paperback in Marvel Comics library. This has sold more collected editions than any other title they've got going on. Right. And yeah, I just confirmed the title that spun out of this. It wasn't Alpha Flight. It was oh. released under the Omega Flight title. Okay. That was the year of the Omega Flight. Yeah, this had you know a direct impact on the status quo for a year and a half. And the emotional ramifications for the characters lasted beyond that. I 
have to read more to be sure after Secret Wars, but at least up to the time that Secret Wars began, Bill Foster was still dead. Yep. He is still dead. Yeah. So he stayed dead for quite a while. <laughs> and you know, the impact this had, this was financially a huge success. So it led to another string of widespread events with lots of tie-ins. None had as many as, as this. And as I said, part of that is because it got extended. So they kept filling in the tie-ins so that retailers should still have Civil War product to hit their goals and their, their expectations. Yeah, I was reading the other day. It was a while ago now, but Civil War is one of their highest selling events by far easily. And then Civil War 2, which is the issue where Spider-Man reveals a secret identity in the world, is one of the highest selling of any of their issues ever. So mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a huge moment. It sent people ballistic online. Mm-hmm. It's there's a lot of people who are gunning for J. Michael Straczynski, who was writing Amazing Spider-Man at the time, blaming him for it when it wasn't him at all. And some of his public statements kind of implied that he opposed the idea, but he would still, you know, write for an outed Spider-Man, then not write Spider-Man at all at the time. Good choice. So yeah, he kept running with it. Uh, he did leave Fantastic Four partway through, mm-hmm. and that's something. And if we get into the responses, this sold huge. I was reading it all the way, but that is one of the points that rubbed me the wrong way was the side that Reed Richards took. Really? Really. And part of the reason that rubbed me the wrong way is because when this came out, I had read every issue of the Fantastic Four ever published up to this point, thanks to the GitCorp DVD-ROMs. And the same situation came up during the uh, Walt Simonson run. And I believe it was the Acts of Vengeance crossover when Congress was talking about doing a superhero registration act. Now, naturally, they didn't have a disaster like Stanford to kick it off. But when that was happening, the motion failed and was defeated because Reed Richards stood before them and single-handedly talked them all out of it by just using plain logic to explain why it was such a bad, bad idea. Hmm. So you've got a character who has already faced the government and talked him out of it. And then you know, when they're trying to justify why... Straczynski felt it was out of character for him, and he was looking for a reason, and he said, well, it's just because it's the law and you got to follow the law, which, I mean, as was pointed out by Johnny Storm in the first issue of Dwayne McDuffie's run, that reason doesn't quite work. Even setting aside the fact that the Fantastic Four got their powers when they stole the experimental government <laughs> rocket and took a flight early because their project was going to be canceled. I mean, the way Johnny put it under the pen of the late, great Dwayne McDuffie was... You don't even obey the laws of physics, so try another one. <laughs> At which point they revealed that he'd basically done what the Mad Thinker was doing, but on a full societal scale, way beyond, and he just his mathematical models predicted complete disaster for the world if they didn't do this. It was just the lesser evil. I think I remember reading those issues, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I I felt that worked for him, so. Math, science. Yep. That, that's something I could see making Reed change his mind after the arguments he made in Acts of Vengeance. Yeah. That would be the new data that would yeah. sway him. Yeah. So kudos to McDuffie for figuring that approach out. <laughs> yeah. The other part that the part that nags me in terms of story structure was again I don't I don't know if I'm sold on the ending. Yeah. Yeah. I've I've heard that from a lot of people. Like up until the last like five pages of issue seven, they felt it was a little rushed, which I can agree with. Yeah. I apparently that's basically what they were, had written up to when Joss Whedon came in and said, "Oh yeah, well Cap would stand down when he saw the collateral damage," and I don't. I don't know that that's the case. I see Cap fighting right to the end. I mean, it was during one of the Civil War tie-in issues where Cap had that conversation with Spider-Man when Spider-Man was trying to decide which side he, you know, if he should flip sides and which side to go on. Mm-hmm. Cap gave the speech, which was cited by the movie that I'm sure we'll yeah, talk yeah, about yeah. In, a, in a few minutes, 
you know, when the entire world tells you that something wrong is something right, then you need to plant yourself like a tree by the river of truth. And if the world says move, you say, no, you move. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a magnificent Captain America speech given oh, yeah. by Cap in the comics and to Cap in the film. But to me, that seeing the Cap give that speech felt like it was part of his character. Seeing him stand down at the end doesn't. I so. don't see him, I don't even see him seeing the civilians get that close. He'd have moved the fight away. He'd have told them, stand back. Mm-hmm. You can't be a soldier of his caliber and not be sufficiently aware of your surroundings to see the civilians coming. Like in Avengers movie when he's telling the police, I need a border here and here. Iron Man, we need to keep the fight within here so we don't hurt anyone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's Captain America. This needs to be contained, Hawkeye. You're the spotter. That's him. Yeah, yeah. So, that's aside from that, a lot of this works. And the big New Warriors fan in me also isn't happy that they're the ones that set the whole thing <laughs> off through sheer stupidity. <laughs> but I'll take it over Miller's original pitch. Yeah, that the one with uh, Happy getting getting shot. Yeah, yeah. If the listeners haven't heard the story in his original pitch, the inciting incident would not have been the death of hundreds of kids at Stanford. It was going to be the death of Happy Hogan and Happy alone mm-hmm. in a botched bank robbery that you know, Robbie Bowman wasn't seeking out. He just happened to be there, turned in a speedball, tried to stop it, and a bullet was going to bounce off speedball and take out Happy. Which is notably smaller. <laughs> yeah, it's not severe enough that I can see the government getting involved on this scale. Yeah, no. So when somebody else came in and they pitched an idea for a superhero team doing a reality show, editorial said, hey... Let's take these original characters you have in mind that really work, make the members of the New Warriors we haven't seen before, and make the team as the New Warriors for a six-issue reality check miniseries to set the status quo as the reality show stars, use this as the inciting incident for Civil War, and just make it that much bigger. Yeah. And that's a change I am completely behind. It did make Mm -hmm. it quite a bit better. Agreed. Although, if you read the Iron Man tie-in issues, you learn that Happy still didn't make it out alive. No. That was that was a sad that was a sad issue. I I yeah I do remember reading that. Yeah, it was, and it's to me it felt almost wrong to have Happy die in the Iron Man title, just because. I mean, on the one hand, I get that once Tony Stark has the Extremis and with his new status quo, there wouldn't have been a lot of room for Happy in the story. Yeah, right. That what's his role in the title? So I I get why they decided to kill him off, but. As much of an impact that Bill Foster's death had, of the three deaths that came out of this story, I think, at least of the major heroes, you know, not worrying about Jack-o'-lantern or the jester here, of the three deaths, those two, like the Bill Foster's was the lowest profile character. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'd say Happy was above Black Goliath, and then of course, we've already discussed it in the Winter Soldier story briefly, although not directly, and in Captain America 25 explicitly. Part of the fallout of this is that Captain America doesn't make it to trial. Mm-hmm. He is shot on his way up the steps. Mm-hmm. Which is also a very sad issue. But led to awesome Bucky Barnes taking up the mantle. That is a good run. Oh, yeah. The Brubaker run on Captain America is my favorite thus far. Oh, yeah. Although I admit there's a lot of his issues I haven't read yet. <laughs> I've got that DVD ROM too. I'll get to them someday. <laughs> <laughs> that was huge. And that's that was the impact it had on the industry at least on the comics, but that impact is still being felt. Mm-hmm. So just to pull back the curtain a bit, I usually try to record these at least a month before release. Mm-hmm. 
the last two episodes are being recorded much closer to the release dates. Yes. Partly because I want the last one to be the last one. Understandably so. Uh, partly because we also wanted to record this after the official release of Captain America Civil War. Such a good movie. Yeah, the, the third Captain America film, which is effectively an Avengers film that just tells most of the story from Cap's point of view. Yeah. That one is at least very tightly thematically related to this. Yeah. So yeah. it is out recently enough that I don't want to get too deeply into spoilers on it mm-hmm. for the sake of people who haven't seen the movie yet. But we are looking at a movie that's been out in North America for a week, yep. overseas for two. Yep. Now, up to this point, its estimated budget is $250 million. It is currently... At a lot more than that. Yeah, it's currently grossed about $179 million in the U.S., about $678 million worldwide. <laughs> yeah, way more than that. Yeah, so we are you know, going by the general rule of thumb that we use that once a movie hit brings in two to three times its budget, it starts making money. Mm. I mean, Captain America is estimated to bring in another $77 million in the next three days after this recording. By the time this podcast comes out, it will probably already be in the profitable range. Yeah, doesn't surprise me. No, it is doing extremely well. It's Marvel, and it's awesome, so. Yeah, it's, I don't think it's Marvel's strongest film to date, but I know a lot of people who believe that, and I can totally see why. I don't tell them, no, you're wrong. I figure it's, you, the the hairs you split between their best movies are fine enough that yeah. it's totally a matter of opinion. Yeah, I'll also have to see it again before I can really decide. But for the moment, I think I still have to give it to Winter Soldier as their strongest movie. Ant-Man's my favorite, though. Put that out there. Yeah, it's, I would rank him uh, Winter Soldier first as well, then Guardians, then Civil War, and mm. then Ant-Man fourth. Guardians is very well structured, yes. Yeah. But hey, we're talking about a studio whose weakest movie to date is Iron Man 2, which is... Not that bad of a movie. No. it It's certainly rewatchable. Yeah. But... Yeah, so if, when you see that, like I said, I don't want to spoil the details of the movie, but it's a lot of the same structure. You know, the heroes are out there in play trying to do their job, and a lot of innocents die as a consequence of the battle. Yep. As a result, there's a pitch for registration. We get a grieving mother who tells Iron Man, my son is dead because of your actions. Iron Man comes out on the pro-registration side. Captain America leads the anti-registration team. Yep. And we get hero against hero with the now Marvel Cinematic Universe version of Spider-Man playing a fairly major role as he does in this. Yeah. So not quite to the same degree as he does in this. Yeah, no. A much bigger impact on this Spider-Man than it was on the film version, but he was very much in the thick of it. Yes. It definitely has an impact in what's going on in the long term. I'm interested to see how it goes forward from here. It's going to be cool to watch. Not that it isn't cool to watch, but... (laughs) So I think from here, we'll move into the part of the story that I've so shamelessly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, where we look for messages, morals, and meanings. Are there any deeper meanings or messages that we can take out of this? Don't fight Captain America, because you're going to lose. That's what I found. <laughs> That's part of it. I actually picked up a couple, one of which I, I don't think is a deliberate message. I find that when Mark Miller is writing any scientist character, he doesn't really get the scientific mindset, and he cuts all emotion <laughs> and tends to make them jerks. Reed was more of a 
uncharacteristic jerk in this, I must say. Yeah. I question how happy Miller's family life was based on <laughs> a lot of the way he represents families, particularly when he was writing the Fantastic Four a few years after this. Mm-hmm. The only time I've appreciated his writing when he's writing a scientist character was in Ultimates because a major part of that book is that none of those characters were likable. Yeah. I had read Avengers Forever before I ever got to Ultimates, and Avengers Forever are all like nice 90s to 60s Avengers. They're all awesome and happy, although some of them aren't, like, because the Captain America in that version's the right after he gets government betrayed version, so okay. he's not the best. But And then I read Ultimates and just, what? <laughs> yeah, Stephen Lacey and I said, that's a compelling and entertaining comic to read? But there's not one character in there I'd want to hang out with. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. The other thing I think is that, you know, Mark Miller being Scottish sort of has an outsider's perspective, but is very aware of what's going on in, the, in America because he he's a smart guy, especially on the business end. He's not about to pour a bunch of time and effort into an idea that's not going to be marketable if he can pour that same time and effort into an idea that he knows will be more marketable, right? Makes sense. It's, if you've got two projects that are both going to be creatively satisfying and one is going to put a lot more money in your pocket, he'll take the higher paying. <laughs> Smart. And I'm not going to fault him for it. Yeah. yeah. That does mean, you know, I think from that outsider perspective, he was looking at the United States post 9 11. And one of the major trends that's been going on, at least in the States, from the outsider perspective in the 15 years since is that. People tend to be voluntarily trading freedom for security. Mm-hmm. Which, fun fact here, as me and Blaine were talking about earlier, for my English final paper, I'm writing an argumentative argumentative paper, which you have to give an issue and then pick which side. So I decided to write with Civil War, just seeing the movie fresh in my mind, about freedom versus security and using this, uh, this story as my basis. Mm-hmm. All right. So here, as a teacher myself, pop quiz, why don't you give us a rundown of your position paper right now and how it works in the context of Civil War? I'm halfway through right now, but sure. So start out just, hey, this is what happens, talking about it. And obviously my teacher isn't very familiar. I mean, not obviously, but she's not familiar with comics or anything. So I have to give the rundown. I'm I'm saying that security is more the more important than freedom because security is what keeps us as a nation together. It gives us laws that makes us a, I don't want to say law-abiding because that's obvious, but it keeps us secure. We want, because as I say here, without security, then anyone would just do whatever they want because there's no laws without it. If we just had complete freedom, we wouldn't have any laws which would allow us to do whatever we want and well, that's not going to work because then you have the crazy people who just do whatever they want and then they won't get punished because they have complete freedom to do whatever they want. So not representative of my stance in the comic book. Total anti-rich, but. Yeah, and that's really what it's coming down to. Mm-hmm. The question in this one, especially following the death of Bill Foster, is does this really make you more secure? Mm-hmm. A good follow-up to that is looking at the fallout from Secret Invasion. So the results of Civil War, all of these secret identities were, you know, in the possession of S.H.I.E.L.D. Following Secret Invasion, Tony Stark wasn't director of S.H.I.E.L.D. anymore. Norman Osborn was director of Hammer. 
the new organization that absorbed S.H.I.E.L.D. And the opening arc in Iron Man's book after that is a great story about Norman Osborn trying to get the secret identities of all these heroes from Tony Stark. Only Tony didn't write them down anywhere, he just memorized them. Wow. So he actually goes on a mission to wipe out his brain pattern and restore it from a backup he made using technology that was first revealed in the Cap Iron Man annual from 1997. Comic books! Yeah, and it actually led to some some great moments, because you know what? Iron Man got cocky. He didn't back up his brain for a while, so he didn't remember from just prior to the Civil War to the end of Secret Invasion. That's, that's cool and crazy, and I'll have to pick that up sometime. Track that oh down. yeah, the Linux fan in me just still loves the point where he's having a conversation with Reed, and Reed's like, you didn't back it up? You could have set it up as a cron job, man! <laughs> cron being short for chronometer, it's something you could use in Linux to make it run commands at certain scheduled times. So you can use cron to say, yeah, back up automatically every week at this time. Cool. I think that is the main thing, is what at what price freedom? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? That's what it boils down to. How much are you willing to sacrifice to have your freedom and to keep that freedom secure? Price of freedom is high. But it's a price I'm willing to pay. Okay. All right. So unless we have more to add to that, next up is why we think it landed at this particular point in the rankings. We usually look at three aspects. There's the entertainment value, there's the significance to continuity, and there's the messages or morals that you can take out of it. So Entertainment, this thing's legit. Stephen McNiven's all of his action sequences, and there are so many of them in this thing are just beautifully illustrated and he has such a I don't know a kinetic way of writing or drawing everything it's beautiful it's beautiful and then as we already mentioned continuity as we were talking earlier this influenced a bunch of everything going forward it sowed seeds except especially for secret invasion it planted those distrust seeds that were just blossomed during secret invasion and just affected everything. Oh, yeah. And it also, I mean, it changed the roster of the Fantastic Four. Spider-Man running without a secret identity completely changed his titles. And again, he realized how much freedom, you know, it was weird. He had more freedom in some respects because people understood why he was taking off at weird times and going through the Spider-Man thing. Mm-hmm. But man, did he lose a lot of security with that. We had the chameleon showing up at his home trying to kill Aunt May. We had everything going on. Which is a great moment. Side note here. Aunt May actually tests Chameleon as Peter Parker by what kind of cookies he likes. And it's literally one of the best things ever. Oh, yeah. Especially since, you know, when she realizes that it's not Peter because he accepts the oatmeal cookies Peter can't stand. She still bakes in the cookies. She just spikes him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He faints. It's great. Yeah, highly recommended run on the Friendly Neighborhood Spider-Man. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that was the Peter David era. Sure. I may be mistaken about that, but either way, <laughs> whoever was writing it, Peter David or others, it was Peter David's run is well worth reading, as were the rest of the sensational and friendly neighborhood Spider-Man titles. Yeah. Back in black, shout out again. That is it. So yeah, this had a, a huge impact. Every book out there had the initiative banner on it, because you were either a member of the initiative or you were not. Mm-hmm. The Avengers the initiative, training the 50 superhero teams. Mm-hmm had some great work. It actually made slapstick work in the Marvel <laughs> Universe. You guys haven't read Initiative? Spoiler alert, slapstick is freaky. He's a freaky dude. And then aside from slapstick, 
we had Butterball, who was just a great original character. <laughs> right. We've got the 3D man that came back in that title during the Secret Invasion era. Mm-hmm. There's just so much great stuff that was available as a consequence of this. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, Miss Marvel, or Carol Danvers, soon to be the star in the Captain Marvel film, had a title that spun out of this, you know, mm-hmm. in combination with House of M. Mm-hmm. We saw some shifts in the Punisher's title, although not as dramatic as they'd be following Secret Invasion. Yeah, yeah. Especially leading into Siege. But that's another story. <laughs> and that story, Frankencastle, did not make the list. I'm not surprised. That was uh, kind of creepy. But I think a lot of why Atlanta at this point in the rankings, it's you know clearly well enjoyed with a great reputation. You don't be Marvel's number one selling trade paperback unless you've got people saying, check this out. Yes, which I tell all my friends too. I love this book. It is, it is a, a very good entry-level story. Mm-hmm. So if this is your first Marvel comic, I almost think if this is your first Marvel comic, you might enjoy it more than if you've read a lot of these titles. So it happened to me, and like I said, I love this. It's my favorite, so you may be right. And like I said, I personally find a couple of the characters were acting out of character, and I've heard similar criticisms from longtime Marvel readers, but yeah, if this is your first introduction to the comics page, it does give you at least a broad in- overview of all the, the various franchises, what they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And who the major players are. Mm-hmm. Even if this is not the real Daredevil. <laughs> Sorry, my love of Daredevil will come through in everything. <laughs> I'm well aware. Daredevil is awesome. So Yeah. All right. But yeah, I think that's why it's here. It is popular. It had a huge impact. Like, you know, if you're looking at those three meanings, there are messages and morals here, although they don't beat you over the head with them. Mm-hmm. And it's got the entertainment and especially the significance to continuity. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh yeah. I said before that when Joe Quesada took over as editor-in-chief, he had three major goals, and that we talk about all three of them during the course of the podcast. The first one we discussed was to unmarry Peter and MJ, which came up when the annual that married them made the list, even if this didn't. His second major goal was to make being a mutant special again, and cut down the number of mutants in the Marvel Universe. Which he definitely did. Yeah, that happened with House of M already. Outing Peter Parker's secret identity in this story was setting the stage to undo the wedding. That's mm-hmm. what was used as the motivation for him to trade away his wedding with Mephisto. Mm-hmm. And then his third and final goal in here was to make the Marvel Universe feel like a place where anything could happen again. He found that there was, in the 60s, you never knew what was coming next. <laughs> no kidding. I mean, look at the Avengers just as an example. Line up at the end of issue one. Thor, Hulk, Iron Man, Ant-Man, Wasp. Line up at the end of issue 17. Captain America, Hawkeye, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver. (laughs) No names in common. At all. (laughs) In Fantastic Four, the leads got married and had a kid. He felt that there was a lot of change going on in the 60s. You never knew what happened next. He wanted to recapture that feeling. And Civil War was his first major step to making that happen. I'd say he did a good job. He did. Following this... You know, you had hero against hero, and that stuck. Mm-hmm. Now, I like I said, I don't see Cap standing down. I think a more realistic ending would have been that the government looked at the collateral damage and said, okay, clearly registering and training you guys isn't working because we still have just as many problems, and it's just as severe, so take the registration off the table and just ban everyone. It wouldn't have given them the status quo they decided on in advance, but I, I think it would be in a, a better fit, and that would have made Cap stand out. It's like, okay, well, we're not at odds anymore. We're all on the same side. What do we do now? Mm-hmm. Right. You retire, 
where we all go underground. Mm. But that would have removed the hero versus hero fighting that helped play in and feed into Secret Invasion, mm-hmm. at least to some degree. Mm-hmm. So, before we go here, did you have any closing thoughts? Yes. One thing, cover to Civil War Seven is my favorite just comic book image of all time. I love that picture so much. Yeah, that was the classic image of Iron Man blasting his repulsors at Captain America's shield. Mm-hmm. With the other Avengers just lying in tatters around him. Mm-hmm. It, it's a great piece of art. It is. And that's, you know, I've commented on the, the characterization, and I'm not a, a huge fan of all of the choices that Miller made <laughs> writing this. But, yeah, I don't fault any of McNiven's work in this one. Steve McNiven delivers in every single panel. Oh, yeah. And I'm quite happy that they decided to push back the release of issue seven rather than bring in a substitute artist or just to fill in. Yeah, yeah. To keep it shipping on time. Yeah, that would have created major disjoint, especially for the last issue. It would have. It's not without precedent. DC did that with their Infinite Crisis. So not the original 12-issue Crisis on Infinite Earths. Yeah, Infinite Crisis where, you know, Superboy Prime gets mad and punches reality. Rocks it even harder than Trentus Magnus, if I do say so. <laughs> when that was running late, they decided to bring in fill-ins to keep the monthly issues shipping on time, and Phil Jimenez was still given the time he needed to finish it properly. So if you bought the monthly issues, you had different artwork in the final issue than if you bought the trade. Because hmm. the trade was Jimenez all the way through, whereas the monthly issue had a few fill-in pages. That would explain why I hadn't noticed, because I genuinely read trades. Okay. Yeah, I read that one in trade as well. I I did notice how disjointed it was when DC made the same choice for the 12-issue Ion miniseries with Kyle Rayner. To keep that one on schedule, they ended up just handing the assignments to other artists. Hmm. And even where they shifted artists, it wasn't necessarily with a shift in story, and they had two fill-in artists working on one issue, and their styles were not similar. Hmm. That was jarring. Yeah. These were not, I'd forget the exact names involved, but it felt like it was on the scale of shifting between, you know, a Scotty Young and a Brian Hitch. Just wow. both good artists in their own right, but not even remotely similar style. No. So, and when the style changes like that in the middle of a conversation, it's really <laughs> jarring because they were basically splitting it by page count. Ah. All right. So with that, so Neek, thanks for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. And for those of you who are reading along at home, next week you will tune in for the final, maybe not so final, episode of the podcast, where we discuss the number one rated Marvel story of all time, The Death of Gwen Stacy, which was originally published in Amazing Spider-Man's 121 and 122. Uh, Spoilers, Gwen Stacy dies. (laughs) Still gets me, though. Still gets me. And uh, it's been reprinted in the 100 Gravest Marvels of All Time, Issues 2 and 5, Essential Spider-Man Volume 6, Marvel Masterworks Amazing Spider-Man Volume 13, Marvel Tales 98 and 99, Marvel Tales Starring Spider-Man 192, Spider-Man vs. Green Goblin, the trade paperback, Spider-Man Death of Gwen Stacy, trade paperback, and Spider-Man Death of the Stacys, hardcover. It's also available on Marvel Digital Unlimited, on Comixology, and on both the GitCorp CDs and the DVD-ROMs. Because Spider-Man was originally released on, I think, a 22 CD set rather than the single DVD ROM set. So, join in next week for that. Feel free to rate this and any other shows you listen to on iTunes or on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed. 
And check out the Facebook discussion forum where you can come and you know, discuss anything you want with any of the stories that are on this list. That forum will not go away and may be used for future announcements. Finally, thank you for listening. Karel, you have traveled far. One journey has ended. A new journey is about to begin. Hey everybody, Magnus here. I do a podcast called Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. What I do is spend six episodes talking about comics, movies, and TV shows. But all that stuff gets put on hold every eighth episode so that I can talk about Smallville. Smallville's the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history. Smallville's my favorite version of Superman apart from the comics, and so every eighth episode, I put Smallville under a microscope. Listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville truly is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. I've recently finished what most people regard as Smallville's first run with the conclusion of the mighty third season of the show. But as awesome as Smallville may have been up to this point, the best is still to come. And I want you along for the ride. This is Magnus Talks About Smallville, an eighth episode feature of Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, now with fewer cigarette breaks. So check out Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday for all the Smallville small talk you could ever hope to shake a stick at. Magnus Talks About Smallville every eighth Tuesday only at twotruefreaks.com. Who talks first? You talk first? I talk first?